You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome, everyone, to another debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, and once again, I have the pleasure of serving as moderator as the four debaters you see sharing the stage with me here at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. Two against two. We'll be debating this motion, Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. Now, this is a debate. It's a contest. It will have winners and losers. And you in our audience, and you're one of our largest, this is a sellout for this debate. You will be serving as our judges. By the time the debate has concluded, you will have been asked twice, both once before and once afterwards, to vote on this motion where you stand. At the end of the debate, the team that has changed most minds over the course of the argument will be declared our winner. So on to the debate. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. And I would like to begin by introducing our first debater for the motion. Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. Dan Sinar, I first met when he was serving as spokesman for the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq. He has also recently been named as a putative candidate for Senate from New York State, but you have shelved that. I have. For the time being. I I hope you won't hold it against me. No, but if you're interested in foreign policy, it worked out for Hillary Clinton. Ladies and gentlemen. I will take that as a uh, quasi-endorsement. Dan Sinar. (laughs) Thanks, John. One caveat before I make my presentation. I'm not here tonight to issue a sweeping critique of every decision of President Obama's foreign policy. What what I'm here to do tonight is try to focus this question, along with with my friend Mort here, who come at this issue, by the way, from different perspectives. He was a supporter, a public supporter of President Obama. I was not. But we both have deep concerns about America's power in world affairs today, America's status in world affairs today. And whenever there has been a prospect of American decline, as we think there is today, one of the shock absorbers, if you will, has been an enlightened understanding among Americans about America's role in the world, about American power. And the, and the secret is, not so secret of secret, is that it's not just about American power. And you have seen these principles articulated, the, and the notion that America helps to turn adversaries, whether they're autocratic regimes or totalitarian regimes, and help them transition to 
democracies. You've seen this throughout American history. It's a bipartisan, post-World War II at least, a bipartisan uh, foreign policy commitment. America will stand by democratic allies around the world no matter what. America will stand by dissidents fighting for their freedom and human rights around the world no matter what. America will consult with its allies before it panders to its adversaries no matter what. And that is what I'm concerned about because you are seeing a realignment in American foreign policy today that backs away from those principles. Those principles are not Republican principles and they're not Democratic principles. President Clinton, who under General Clark's superb leadership in the Balkans, intervened to stop a genocide in the heart of Central Europe in the spirit of human rights, in the spirit of helping out allies. This is a spirit you've seen throughout our foreign policy, transcending party lines. There have been exceptions, obviously, the Carter years, part of the Kissinger years. And today, you are seeing a, a strategic decision by this administration to basically send a message to our friends and allies around the world that they can't count on us, for a very good reason, the administration would argue, because we are in an effort to reach out to new, quote-unquote, friends. And in so doing, we may have to compromise our historic friendships. Look at the, I mean, this is just not an abstract discussion. You just look at where we are in the world today. Iran is closer to having a nuclear bomb today than it was a year ago. Despite pleadings from our friends and allies in moderate Sunni Arab regimes in the Arab world and leaders in Israel. This is a fact. Leaders in Eastern and Central Europe were completely off guard when President Obama announced a unilateral revoking of our missile defense agreement in the Czech Republic and Poland just a few months ago, all in an effort to reach out to Medvedev and Putin in Russia. Nicolas Sarkozy, the president of France, has called the president's foreign policy naive. I think the message has been clear over the last 15 or 16 months that it's a darn good time to be an adversary of America, and it's a pretty crummy time to be a friend and historic ally of America. And the moment our historic alliances and friendships believe that they cannot count on America and its fidelity to the principles of Truman and Acheson, America truly will be in decline. Thank you, Dan Sinor. Our motion is Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline and speaking first against the motion. Wesley Clark, you've just heard him complimented by his opponent for his service uh, leading NATO forces in the operations in Bosnia. He's the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe. Again, a lifelong public servant who made a very credible run for president in 2004, actually winning uh, primaries along the way. Um, although, uh, General, it occurs to me that if had you won, these guys might be blaming you for America's decline right now. So, so maybe it worked out. Ladies and gentlemen, Wesley Clark. The truth is... When we're talking about American foreign policy, it didn't begin on the 21st of January 2009. And so I want to establish uh, three things tonight. First, that Barack Obama began in a deep hole. I don't think there's been any period in American foreign policy and domestic policy where we've seen so many crises and difficulties. It started with, with 9-11, when the administration basically ignored the experience of the Clinton administration, didn't pay enough attention to terrorism, and we got clobbered. It then went into a war in Afghanistan that didn't target the correct enemy. Then we withdrew our intelligence assets. We prepared to go to war with Iraq. That easy victory turned into a drawn-out, very expensive, very difficult insurgency. In the process, we lost friends and allies as they all fell by the wayside except for a couple of great allies like Britain and, and Italy. And then followed up by the financial collapse of 2007-2008, which 
uh, really put us in, uh, in a hole as a nation that was in decline. So Barack Obama had a very tough road to hoe. I think he's doing a lot of things right. He's starting by trying to make more friends and fewer enemies in the world. So he's reached out a hand of friendship to the Islamic world. His speech in Cairo was incredibly well-received. He was nominated and received the Nobel Peace Prize based on the atmosphere he projected. And that atmosphere goes a long way in international relations. He's kept our military strong. He has doubled down in Afghanistan. He's made it clear that there will be no easy path for terrorists in the United States. And he's taken a major role in international economic affairs. And really, there's nothing more important after you keep America safe than to rebuild this economy. As far as Iran is concerned, and I, here I want to turn to, my, to the third point, let's talk about Iran. Because of going into Iraq, the Bush administration was never able to bring moral force or intelligence to bear on Iran. In fact, there was an erroneous intelligence report in 2007 that said they'd given up their nuclear program. So let's give the president time to sort of get traction in world affairs. He's had it. He's brought consensus to bear in the United Nations that Iran is not complying. All options are on the table. That chapter is not over by a long shot, I would predict. I can't comment on what President Sarkozy said about Barack Obama's naivete. I'll leave those kinds of personal comments aside. But I think what you do have in the president is a man who is experienced in the world, a man who looks at the other side as well as what his own feelings are, someone who's running a pragmatic, non-ideological policy, someone who's shown he's tough, he's going to take America and lead us forward. I think you have to vote no to the idea that President Barack Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. That's a no. Thank you. Thank you. Wesley Clark. You have heard the first two debaters, and now on to the third. I would like to introduce Mort Zuckerman, who is chairman and editor-in-chief of U.S. News and World Report and publisher of the New York Daily News. Ladies and gentlemen, Mort Zuckerman. Now, any president of the United States really inherits a great legacy. Uh, we stand at the top of the power ladder. We are not a dominant power, but we're the leading power. And we're the only power that can coordinate and coalesce groups of nations. Um, most countries distrust the United States less than they distrust one another. So they look for Washington, to Washington for leadership, um, and they look for Washington to support them against regional uh, opponents and other threats. They know they cannot solve most of these problems without the United States. And they need our leadership in the most severe and serious way. Now, my sense, however, is that uh, President Obama on this level is uncomfortable uh, with this role for the United States. He seems to be uncomfortable in leading a lot of other nations. Instead, what you have, it seems to me, is uh, too much well-intentioned belief in the power of rhetoric, goodwill, and too little appreciation of reality. As the former president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Les Gelb, put it, there is the impression that Obama confuses speeches with policies. And this is where I think we have a real problem, uh, because there is, I think, a critical mass of influential people in world affairs who once held high hopes for this president and have begun to wonder whether or not they have misjudged the man. 
In the Middle East, they always talk about the following. There are two chess games that are always being played in the Middle East. One is the chess board that you see on top of the table. The other is the chess board that is below the table that nobody sees except the people who know how to play the game. And the sense that they have is that this administration does not know how to play the game. And it also has contributed to a growing perception that Obama's management of American power is almost amateurish. Um, he tends to be, speak as a teacher rather than as a leader. I will give you uh, an illustration of how a major foreign leader of an Arab country put it to me. He, when you remember Obama said, if people uh, extend a, a hand to shake our hands instead of a fist, we will shake that hand. He says, the problem is with Iran. You can't deal with them by shaking the hand. You have to deal with them by showing that you are capable of uh, uh, exercising the fist. And that is, what, that is that understanding and that understanding of the culture, not just in the Middle East, but in many parts of the world that is missing. Uh, now the question is, is Iran going to be emboldened by what they see and experience as American weakness and the lack of real willpower? The, the Arab foreign ministers put it in the following way. One of them said, and this is a quote, he said, they are hopelessly naive. The Americans are hopelessly naive. And they, in, in that part of the world, naivete is not just naivete. It is seen as weakness, and it really gives the impression that the leadership does not have the stuff that real leaders are made of. And that is the feeling that they have about America these days. What we are talking about here is an ability to play the game and an understanding of how to play the game and play the game well and effectively. That is what I see is lacking in the, in the uh, Obama administration and why it makes me feel that we are on the decline. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Welcome back to the program. Our motion is Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. And our final speaker, I'm very pleased to say, is uh, a European. Given that we are speaking about foreign policy, I'd like to introduce Bernard-Henri Lévy, French philosopher and public intellectual. I would love to see the business card that says philosopher and public intellectual. <laughs> he has written extensively about the United States, very often in positive tones. And he is here tonight to argue against the motion that Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. Ladies and gentlemen, Bernard-Henri Lévy. In this debate, I will have a, a, a big handicap and a little advantage. The, the big handicap is unfortunately my terrible and pitiful English. And my little advantage is to look at this topic, at this motion from outside, and maybe from a slightly objective point of view. When you, when you speak about... Uh, Obama's foreign policy is uh, spe uh, spelling America's decline. What do people say in reality? Number one, they speak about the weakness, the supposed weakness of Barack Obama. I think it is not true. I think that Obama, as I see him from outside, tries compromise. And when it does not work, for Syria, for example, then sanctions and strength. The second thing which is meant when one speaks about uh, Barack Obama spelling uh, the decline of America uh, alludes to the fact that Obama would be not enough supportive to his natural allies, 
I don't think so at all. I just believe that he does what a foreign policy must do, speaks with enemies, speaks with ugly um, leaders, and in the respect of the natural alliance. Number three uh, is that he speaks a lot and acts not enough. But why does he speak so much? He speaks because he knows that the new stage of foreign policy has new actors, and especially one new actor. Not only the big leaders of the world or the little leaders of the world, but the public opinion. Barack Obama understood to address directly the world public opinion that it is the only chance to achieve some real results, as he did, for example, with the speech of Cairo. Another criticize which is done to Barack Obama is to admit too easily the rise of new powers and the subsequent diminishing of the American influence. But again, who is really spelling the decline? Those who still live in the world of yesterday or those who try to understand the world which is coming with new lens, with new glasses, and trying to maintain the rank of America in this new world. Barack Obama just knows that China is becoming a big power. He just knows that Russia is an actor. He knows that he has to deal with that, and he does. And the last reproach which is done to him is about exceptionalism. I read that often, that Barack Obama is getting rid of this old American creed, which is exceptionalism. And why? Because he apologized for Abu Ghraib, for Guantanamo, for torture, and so on. I believe the contrary. I believe that only the dictators never apologize. And I believe that when you apologize, it means that you believe in your creed, that you believe in your values, and you believe in their superiority. Barack Obama, more than ever, believes on the house shining on the hill, and that's why I vote no on the motion. He does not spell American decline. Thank you, Bernard Omi Levy. And that concludes opening statements for this Intelligence U.S. Square debate. Now, before the debate, we had you vote on where you stood on our motion. Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline, and we now have the results of that uh, vote. This is where it stands. 23% of you are for the motion, 45% are against the motion, and 32% are undecided. That's where it stands now. At the end of the debate, we'll have you vote once again. And the team that has changed the most minds during the course of the argument it will be declared our winner. So now on to round two, where the debaters address each other directly. We have here at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University two teams of two, Dan Senor and Mort Zuckerman, who are arguing that Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. They have made the argument that 
President Obama has snubbed old friends. On the other side, Wesley Clark and Bernard-Henri Lévy, who have made the argument that President Obama is setting out to make new friends. What we're really talking about at some level in terms of the person of President Obama is the matter of respect. Does the world respect him? And I want to put that question to both sides briefly. First to the team for the motion, Mort Zuckerman. Well, I'm going to speak with a French accent, if you don't mind. (laughs) This is unfair. (laughs) Um, I I will uh, quote a major Asian leader who said, um, a very well-known Asian leader who said, in the world of Asia, um, we are concerned that Obama does not have the strength to confront his enemies. And we fear that he does not have the strength to support his friends. I would ask you to think, if I may, do you think that the ability to speak is influencing the way political decisions are made in those parts of the world where we are trying to influence them? Do we think that we are getting through to the leadership because Obama gives speeches? So you do not think he's respected? No, I I think he is respected. I don't think he is effective. To the other side. Wesley Clark. Well, I think he is effective. I think what he's done first is he's set up a base of public understanding for his values and America's values and his vision. He's then set about restoring the relationship with allies and then trying to work to head off the greatest challenges we face. So, for example, you were talking about nuclear weapons, Mort, and he called together a a nuclear nonproliferation summit in Washington. People came. And they came because they respect him and they respect what he stands for in the United States of America. I think most of us would agree that the greatest single threat we face right now is a nuclear weapon in the hands of terrorists. And that's the problem Barack Obama is focusing on. So I give him high marks for the summit. I give him high marks for moving ahead with the symbolism of a start agreement with Russia to reduce levels of nuclear weapons. And I give him high marks for the general focus that he's brought to bear on looking to prevent future problems from emerging. Dan Sino, Yeah, I would just say that the fear of nuclear weapons getting to the hands of terrorists is not really an abstract debate, right? I mean, Iran, according to the IAEA, according to our own intelligence community, Iran will have some sort of nuclear weapon, some sort of breakout capacity very soon, two years, three years. We still don't have a Security Council resolution, despite high approval, public opinion approval of President Obama around the world. The Chinese won't get on board. The Russians won't get on board. I mean, you know, speeches and personal biography and personal charisma are are wonderful. They're nice. I think people around the world like us. I just think they're limited commodities in foreign affairs. Nations, You're saying the goodwill does not translate. Nations don't, don't make major decisions about their security because President Obama gives a nice speech. They do what's in their interest. So I guess I would ask either of you, show me one example, one, that has generated any benefit in response to Obama's wonderful speeches. What have we gotten? Bernard I, I give you two examples. Barack Obama is your first president and first leader of high rank to have said that the risk of a terrorist group having a nuclear devices in hands will happen, could happen in Pakistan. You, you had a president who said it was Iraq and who looked for the nuclear weapons with a lamp torch. <laughs> Barack Obama says that the problem is in Pakistan. 
Example number two. Wait, the let's, speech, let's, let's, while we hold that, because I no, want to, too many. I'm very excited for number two, because number one, that is your big get, is that, that Obama said that Pakistan poses a threat. One of the rationales that Bush used for going into Afghanistan is that Pakistan could fall, it has its arms on, it has its hands on nuclear weapons, and those nuclear weapons could get in the wrong hands. Your big, your big get is that Obama basically confirmed something we all know. Let's hear number two, Where example number two. Number two, the speech of Cairo. You know, the best way to help your friends is to disarm the enemies of your friends. And the, the speech of Cairo had one concrete effect, to comfort the moderates in Islam, to isolate the people of Al-Qaeda, the fanatics and the integrists, to divide the Muslim world. Okay. Is this is a strategy Wait, of Obama. Hamas is stronger today than it was a year ago. Syria announced, or it's been reported, that Syria is sending Katusha rockets to Lebanon to give to Hezbollah, and more sophisticated weaponry than that. Exactly. So it was a great speech. It was a very moving, and it was a poetic Dan, speech. But Dan, what Bernard is saying is that its concrete effect was to tell the moderates out there, we are with you. Is that not meaningful? I, I, I would say it's, it's nice, but at the end of the day, the moderates need to know that we are going to stand with them. And exactly what has Barack Obama indicated in terms of what political capital and what resources America will expend to stand with these moderates? You had an opportunity in Iran. There was a bona fide dissident movement almost one year ago today. They were saying, where is America? Throughout modern history, as you know, Bernard, because you've been very active on these human rights issues, America leaders and American presidents have put a spotlight on dissident movements, whether it was, it was the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, whether it was the Soviet dissident refusenik movement in the former Soviet Union. The, the oxygen for these movements is America keeping a spotlight on it. Our president was silent. Wesley Clark. Well, in the first place, the inspiration for a lot of that movement came from the words of Barack Obama and his symbolism. Secondly, secondly, I, I think it's very interesting that you want to ask, what's the benefit of a speech? Because one of the things we did learn during the previous administration was that harsh rhetoric doesn't help. Strong, bullheaded rhetoric appeals to Americans, but it doesn't change foreign affairs. It's what Ahmadinejad wants. It helps him consolidate his grip on power when we call him names. So even though I know that I would like to believe that America could cause a revolt inside Iran, we've been talking about a change in regime through six administrations, and it hasn't happened in Iran yet. But what is a demonstration of Barack Obama's strength is his staying with his commitment in Iraq. It is reinforcing in Afghanistan. And he is recognized around the world for his courage in making that call. I, too, have talked to foreign leaders, and Mort, that's what they tell me. Mort Zuckerman. Well, um, I think you, again, I hate to say this, but I think you're speaking only to foreign leaders who speak with a French accent. I don't know what else to tell you. No, I, that's an unfair comment. Look, let me just say this. <laughs> Um, uh, the one area of the world I think where we have to worry about is, frankly, the Middle East. And uh, there you have, I think, a couple of countries and a couple of movements that are really threatening a lot of our allies. And I, I don't 
dismiss entirely the rhetoric of the president. I'm just saying that in that part of the world, you need a lot more than rhetoric. I don't want to diminish what the value of rhetoric is. I'm afraid that the rhetoric that is being saluted here is not nearly as effective as you would say, and the policies that would be effective are simply not being carried out. Our our motion is Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. And in arguing for this motion, are you saying that the decline has begun already? We're in it? Dan Senor. Uh, I, I think the, uh, the, the prospect of decline is real. We are in an early stage of it. And I, I would say that um, uh, when you have a situation where leaders around the world, allies of ours, historic allies, are openly calling us na- naive, that will spell American decline because we can't do this on our own. And I, I want to ask a question. You know, I, I agree with you that George W. Bush was extremely, I'll be the first to admit, unpopular around the world. But one thing President Bush did have is very deep relationships with leaders, Osnar in Spain, Harper in Canada, Howard in Australia, Blair in the UK, Sharon in Israel. Um, These leaders stood by Bush through thick and thin, even though their populations despised him. I ask you two, tell me one leader today that has that kind of relationship with Barack Obama, one leader around the world that is so moved by his speeches and so moved by, by this press release he put out saying that Pakistan has terrorists in it. Uh, to point, point one leader that is willing to stand by him and who he has a very close alliance. Just one. I think it is because of my French accent, but you did not get what I said, I suppose. <laughs> so I will repeat. The, one, the characteristic of the period where we are is that Berlusconi, Zapatero, and even Sarkozy might be less important today than the peoples, than the masses, than the huge crowds who all over the world were fed by a rubbish anti-Americanism for, for ages and who are slightly changing their mind. Maybe Sarkozy say that Barack Obama is naive. But not maybe. He said it in a speech before the UN General Assembly. Don't overestimate Sarkozy is not so important. <laughs> More important than Sarkozy is that you have, as you know, an annual poll judging the big leaders of the world. And Barack Obama arrives at 46 or 48. So Dan, no, that, you're getting... Those polls don't make policy. Governments make policy. And there's not those a single government make that's yes. willing to... Yes, it's very nice. They history, cheer. They applaud for him. History is one not made... That, no, no. Bernard, one leader. One History leader. is not made by Berlusconi. No. History are made by real people. But, suffering people. Losing their houses. Yes. Suffering for terrorism. Being fed up by fanaticism. Which, this is the real actor of history. And and in front of these people, Barack Obama is much more popular than has been so I think your three last presidents. Are you, think, are you basically I conceding think, wait, the wait, question then. you're asking, Dan, is a naive question? <laughs> and I'll tell you why. The, the, the inner Sarkozy in you. And I'll tell you why. Because if you believe that leaders stand by the United States because of some personal relationship with the president then you're neglecting the whole political basis for their own mandate in their own country. I I, I want to be clear here. It is true that political leaders make decisions based on their domestic political situation. In fact, several of the leaders I cited lost their elections 
because of their commitment to standing with the United States under President Bush. Their sense of loyalty to President Bush was because of his commitment to them and his commitment to the security of their countries, which is what they ultimately care about. And I don't see a single policymaker in the world today, despite the millions of people who have this affection for President Obama, which I think is heartfelt, I don't see a single policymaker that is willing to stand up and go toe-to-toe and lock arms with, the, with this president. And I, I, I think if I, they believed he was committed that, what, to them, that, that you'd have a different what, outcome. What, okay, what, I, I want to move on to... Bernard, I want to move on to some other topics no, no, because, what, what, because what, what I, this can go on forever, and I, I do want to move on. But before we do that, I just want to go to a specific example to put this in more concrete terms, and I would like to talk about China. Dan Senor, take on the president's performance in China. It was stunning. I've never heard such unanimous criticism of a president's visit to China from across the political spectrum. It was, it was a humiliating experience. The Chinese were allowed to censor his speech. The Chinese were allowed to choose who could attend the speech. And he left China with no concessions from the Chinese. Normally when presidents go, even if they intend to somewhat humiliate the president, they at least give them a couple of crumbs to leave with. We didn't get anything. I keep coming back to my question. What do we get? What have we gotten for this new posture? I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. We are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. As moderator, we have four debaters, two teams of two, who are arguing over this motion, Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. Uh, Ma'am? This question is for Dan Center. I think he does, President Obama has some say in the world and policy changing, specifically in Afghanistan and the treatment of women. I noticed in the news that there was a new policy change. Uh, So how do you equate what's a benefit in policy changes versus a deficit? And and just to clarify, you feel that his statements had impact? They changed a lot. Okay, that's what I wanted to nail down. Dan Sino. Um, I... I am the first to credit the president on, on some of the progress in Afghanistan. I, what, what I'm saying is it doesn't compensate for a complete realignment of U.S. foreign policy in every other corner of the world. So it is very important what you just cited about women's rights in Afghanistan. At the same time, the government of Russia, with whom this president c- celebrates a reset of relationships, is engaged in a fierce political repression of opponents, is murdering journalists. Iran, I mean the dissident movement in Iran – was basically left on their own. And I think it is more consistent with American decline than it is American ascendancy. If Iran develops a nuclear weapon capability, we will have a nuclear arms race in the Middle East, the likes of which we have never seen. There are news reports coming out of Egypt and out of Saudi Arabia and out of Yemen. Dan, I I want to interrupt you because I want to bring it back to the question and let Wesley respond as well to the question the, the questioner was asking about the impact of the president's remarks about the rights of women. She's claiming that it has some sort of real impact. And I think, Dan, you're saying, yeah, maybe it does, but it's not enough. It's, it's important. It just doesn't compensate for a okay. foreign policy framework. I, no, I accept what Dan says. It, it is important. It's certainly not the whole plank of our foreign policy. It's an example of how a statement by a leader can have an impact. The question of Iran is hanging over our president as the judgment of his foreign policy. You know, before he was elected, he did go to Israel, and uh, he did speak to AIPAC, and he made very clear he would not tolerate Iran having nuclear weapons. This is a pivotal decision in the future of the Middle East, the future of nonproliferation, 
and the future of the world security structure as we know it. And that's why he called the Nuclear Nonproliferation Summit. That's why he's working to line up the support of public opinion. And it's moving in our direction. Sir, um, uh, yes. My question is directed at Mr. Zuckerman. Uh, it was mentioned that you uh, were a supporter of Barack Obama during the campaign. So uh, it seems to me that he campaigned on this policy of engagement that you oppose and has only become more his, his policy in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan has only become more muscular and alienating his base. Well, yes, I did uh, support. You're saying he's not engaging enough. Uh, Obama, yes. I'm saying that engagement is not enough uh, to deal with the issues that we have to deal with, not in Iran, frankly, not in the Soviet Soviet Union, not with China, and not in the Middle East. I'm not dismissing engagement. It's just not enough. And, sir, just you can nod or not. I just want to ask you, your critique of the president's performance is a more critique from the left. So he's getting it from the other side. And I believe, uh, Bernard, that's also the case often in Europe, that where people are disappointed in Europe with the president is that, in fact, he did send troops into Afghanistan and that he went to accept his Nobel Prize and made an argument in support of war in certain causes. And then, in fact, they thought he was too tough. What is, uh, what is very positive and very positively appreciated in Europe is that Obama engaged some troops in Afghanistan, but with some concrete effective and important results. Number one, inside Afghanistan, isolation of Talibans. This is a new reality on the ground. Number two, I happen to be, I'm sorry, but in Afghanistan two years ago, and I saw some offensive units, which were American units, fighting units, with some Afghan scouts embedded in the American units. Now, it is a reverse. You have some national Afghan battling units with some embedded American, not scouts, but mentors. Let's see if your components concede that point or uh, not. It is, Dan, it, it Dan is concrete. It is I, precise. Um, I actually have deep concerns about Afghanistan right now, about the civilian-military coordination. I think we are potentially heading for a crisis. But that said, I don't take one ounce away from the president's courageous decision on Afghanistan. To me... It's important, but it doesn't make for a foreign policy. Bernard, look, I have been a great admirer of yours. Throughout your career, you have advocated for human rights. There were about 40 individuals that signed a letter to the president on the eve of his trip to, to Moscow asking him to meet with opposition, a small-D Democratic opposition figures in Moscow while he was there. Only one leader from the left in the United States signed it, the head of Amnesty International USA. And as one left-wing blog commented, it's a sad statement of the state of affairs that that human rights has so been subordinated that if someone from the left wants to advocate for for human rights being an important part of a president's visit, they have to sign a letter with a bunch of neocons like myself. It's It's a sad statement of affairs, and I'm amazed that you are giving him a pass. The question of human rights is also a question inside inside Islam, between Islam, democratic Islam and uh, integrist and fanatic Islam. In this battle, which is the most important battle of the moment, 
Obama, his play, Obama and his team and Clinton are playing a major role in separating the two, in isolating the fanatics and the integrists from the moderate, in saying to the moderate Muslims that they are no longer our enemies, that we are on their side, that we are facing the same problems and that we are sharing the same values. Can I ask you a question? Why didn't he give that exact speech you just gave? when the dissidents were rising up in Iran? He did, because he did it in a way. Mousavi was nearly under arrest. You had some dissidents who were, who were shot dead like Neda in the street. And there was a very responsible attitude to have in front of butchers. Ahmadinejad is not a president, he is a butcher. And I think that the concern of Every responsible Western leader was to avoid in Tehran a Tiananmen. The Iranian regime's response. The Iranian regime's response made Tiananmen look like a day at the park. The, the regime was more repressive today than it has been at any time. It's and Mousavi and his leaders were calling on America. Where is America? Why isn't America putting a spotlight on our movement, giving us the oxygen we need? Let's take them at their word. You have- no. All right. I Sir, um, John, I have to come okay, back. Okay, Wes, because you have a minute. I have to come back on the human rights issue. Look, I don't think the United States government under Barack Obama has moved one iota off its steadfast commitment to human rights every country in the world. What there is is a disagreement about tactics. There are some who believe that you should carry human rights on the top of the banner and use it in a provocative way when you're making a visit abroad. There are others who believe that there's a more constructive way to go at it. But I do think that there is a difference in calling for human rights and making a big splash about it as a provocative gesture when you go into a country where you know you're going to have conflict on this and trying to work behind the scenes and more quietly to actually improve the opportunity for human rights. And so that's what this administration is trying to do. Ma'am, if you, if you don't read your question, I see you're holding a piece of paper. If you're re- prepared to just set, blurt it out. Hi, my name's Anna. I'm a senior at the University of Vermont, and my question is directed towards the opposition bench. Both of you spoke about how the leaders do what's best for their country and how now public opinion is now more important and even considered the new actor when it comes to foreign policy. Public opinion says that what Obama did and his actions towards Israel and the Israeli government earlier this year was inappropriate. He did not listen to public opinion until two bipartisan letters came to him from Congress. If public opinion is so imperative to the president and his foreign policy, how come it took Congress to back it? And in that case, you're talking about U.S. public opinion. Yes, but I was not speaking about this public opinion only. Yeah, I didn't think so. I was speaking about world public opinion. And I was saying that we are going out, we are leaving a policy of big hugs, of uh, good buddies, Sarkozy, Bush, and so on, and we are good friends, blah, blah, blah. This was the old politics. And that today we are facing, we are discovering a real moving actor, which is the public opinion, the fighting public opinion in Iran, which is all the people around the world. And to this, Barack Obama addresses for the first time a language 
which goes at the same time to the brain and to the heart. Another question? Um, if you just come out to the aisle. Do you think it is more likely that the encouragement of Iranian rebels would have resulted in bloodshed and with no further progress, or that we should have spoken loudly with no ability to protect them? Well, I think that's a fair question. <clears throat> I, I, I don't know. Nobody will ever know what would have worked better. I do think that's a fair argument to make. I don't know the answer uh, to that question. I actually, can I, can I, I it's, as Mort said, it's very difficult to prove a, a counterfactual, what would have happened if. But we do know what actually happened, right? The administration chose to be silent, and there was bloodshed in the streets of Tehran. And the dissident leaders, who we hope are the future leaders of Iran, were saying, where is America? That much we know. And we know the whole world watched that happen where we looked impotent in the face of uh, a major threat to the Iranian regime. Dan, since you have we, said that, and we're running out of time, uh, I want to let Wes respond. A, it, I want to let Wes respond well, to that. I think and then you I have to be question. careful in foreign policy not to adopt a feel-good foreign policy. I agree. And one of the persistent elements of, of what we're getting from our worthy opponents is a feel-good foreign policy. It's like You know, I'm America. Stand up. This is what I believe. That's all well and good, and it goes great in a rotary club where I come from. But when you're actually trying to influence other nations, that kind of logic doesn't work. That's the logic that animated the last administration. It didn't work. We're not going to repeat it. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. So... Here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements by each of the debaters in turn. To remind you of your vote on our motion when this debate began, the motion being Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. Before the debate began, 23% of you agreed with the motion, 45% of you disagreed, 32% were undecided. We will have you vote again in a few minutes after closing statements, and the team that has changed the most minds will be declared our winner. But first, round three, closing statements, and speaking first against the motion, Wesley Clark, retired four-star general, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe, and senior fellow at UCLA's Burkle Center. Well, I guess the first thing I would, I would say is that Barack Obama took over a nation. I'm not going to label it decline. I'm just going to say it was in a hole, and he's tried to work very systematically to pull us up out of that hole, keeping us safe, dealing with other nations. He hasn't accepted the old prejudices. He did not go to China and say, I won't talk to you unless you release two human rights activists right now, because the issues between the United States and China are not best dealt with in that kind of a public forum. He's been very strong in the NATO summits, and every indication shows our president is a man of strong logic, strong convictions, and a man who doesn't hesitate to make tough decisions when they're necessary. He knows those decisions are coming in this administration. And when he makes them, I think you'll see that America is a strong, capable, and respected nation. America, our foreign policy under Barack Obama spelling America's decline, I don't think so. I think you're seeing America rebuilding itself, pulling itself up by the bootstraps to move forward into the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you, Wesley Clark. 
Our motion is Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. And now summarizing his position against the motion, Dan Senor, adjunct senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. He's a former Pentagon and White House advisor. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Senor. There was an interesting development about six, eight weeks ago after the administration caused a near rupture in the U.S.-Israel relationship over an insult uh, that the administration felt it had been subjected to by the Israeli government over the, over the settlement issue in East Jerusalem. A week later, Secretary Clinton went to Moscow. And the purpose of that trip was to try to get the, the Russians to get on board on the Security Council for real sanctions against Iran. She arrived in Moscow, and everyone knew that was the purpose of her trip. And upon her arrival, the foreign minister of Russia publicly announced that Russia was resuming its building of the nuclear plant in Bushir, Iran. Welcome to Moscow, Madam Secretary. When a senior administration official was quoted in the Washington Post was asked, do you think that was an insult? He said, absolutely not. Now, anyone who believes that, by the way, shouldn't be a senior administration official. But more importantly, it's a metaphor for this administration's realignment of its foreign policy. We are sending a very consistent message, and the leaders of that part of the world are no longer saying it quietly. They are saying it publicly, that they feel that America is moving away from its historic commitments to those countries. As I said before, personal biography is nice, and it is moving to win over crowds around the world. It is not a substitute for a foreign policy, especially when your country is in decline. Thank you, Dan Senor. The motion, Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline, and summarizing his position against the motion, Bernard-Henri Lévy, French philosopher and best-selling author. Yes, to conclude, I think that we, we are entering in a, in a new world with new rules of the game, with new actors, and that, of course, the decline is possible. But I believe that Obama goes against, resists this possible decline. I am a militant of human rights all my life, but I know also that when you are the chief of the first superpower in the world, you must be accountable for every single word you express. You cannot go to say to the Iranian people, go, revolt, and then what? Are you ready to support? Are you ready to wage war or not? Obama has the wisdom not to act this way. He acts with a very wise mix of strength and retention of strength. Fire and holding the fire. And this is what foreign policy is. Thank you. Thank you, Bernard. The motion, Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline, and finally summarizing his position in support of this motion, Mort Zuckerman, chairman and editor-in-chief of U.S. News and World Report and publisher of the New York Daily News. Uh, The reference was made to the economy and to the economic condition of the United States, but if there is one area where, in my judgment, we have made huge errors that is going to compound the economic, macroeconomic problems of the United States is, in fact, the way we have responded to the economic crisis. There isn't a country in the world that doesn't understand how serious the problems are for the United States and its economy. And if there is one area where we had a huge reach around the world, it was in the area of the economy. And that, I will suggest to you, is the area where this administration has failed the most. And by the way, the people who know it most clearly are the American people. I think that it contributes mightily to the conclusions that we would urge you to have. Thank you, Mort Zuckerman. 
And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side has argued best. Our motion, Obama's foreign policy spells America's decline. Before the debate, 23% of you were for, 45% against, and 32% undecided. At the end, 34% are for the motion, 58% are against, and 8% are undecided. The team against the motion carries the night. Congratulations to them. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate presented by the Rosencrantz Foundation was held at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whitmore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.